Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for joining us on KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. A few days ago, we saw and heard baseball fans in Boston heckling an opposing player using racial slurs. Athletes across the nation, including local stars, have spoken out against police shootings of unarmed black men. Women athletes have taken a stand against pay inequality. And always there's criticism of well-known sports or entertainment figures using their status to make social and political statements. But as my guest has spent his entire career teaching us, sports reflect society. And it's that intersection we're going to talk about today with Dr. Harry Edwards, Professor Emeritus of Sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. He specializes in sociology of sport, family, race, and ethnic relations. He's the author of four books on the subject, and he continues to consult for the San Francisco 49ers and other sports organizations. Dr. Harry Edwards, thank you for joining us again on In-Depth. We always love it when you when you come and spend some time. Thank you very much for having me again. This is a huge year and a big congratulations go out to you participating in OJ Made in America that resulted in an Academy Award. You're off in a matter of hours to possibly receive an Emmy from a letter to Bill Walsh. Well, remember, it's being nominated, not nominated. Winning. Okay, really well, nice. maybe, maybe. <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm still getting my head around the fact that 50 years... Uh, since you wrote the book, The Revolt of the Black Athlete, a, a new 50th anniversary edition is yes. out. The University of Illinois Press has uh, reissued The Revolt of the Black Athlete principally because um, the arguments, the statements, the uh, dispositions and so forth that were enunciated in that book have stood up extraordinarily well. I've written a new introduction and a new afterword. Um, it's selling uh, phenomenally well. Uh, and so it's been um, it's been quite an honor. Um, I wrote that book when I was a student at Cornell University, finishing my Ph.D., and um, it stood up very very well over the last fifty years. Let's talk about the arc of those fifty years uh, from uh, 1968 when you were writing this book and everything that was going on uh, in society with the civil rights movement, but within sports. Um, uh, black athletes um, close by San Jose State, my alma mater, uh, Smith and Carlos, and and that incredible moment at the Olympics and the raised fists. Do you see the last 50 years as an ebb and flow? Have we made some progress? It seems as though we're falling back right now, at least publicly, or has this been a continuum? It's been a continuum. Uh, the, the 1960s was uh, really an era 
when you had the third wave of uh, athlete uh, political involvement. It began, of course, uh, right after the turn of the century with Jack Johnson and continued with Joe Lewis and Jesse Owens and Paul Robeson. Then you had the immediate post-World War II era with Jackie Robinson, uh, Larry Doby, uh, basketball players, Kenny Washington in football, Woody Strode in football, Marion Motley in football, Bill Willis in football with Cleveland. Uh, you had uh, uh, those uh, athletes who were pushing for access um, as opposed to mere legitimacy as had occurred with uh, Jack Johnson. I mean, all of the athletes uh, right after the turn of the century in 1900 to World War II were pushing for legitimacy. They um, uh, achieved their greatest fame in an athlete. Jack Johnson fought Tommy Burns uh, and, and a Canadian in Australia. Jesse Owens achieved his fame in the Munich Olympics. Joe Lewis knocked out Max Smelling, a German, in an, another international realm because at home, uh, fighters wouldn't even fight uh, uh, Joe Lewis. Uh, uh, Jesse Owens was the greatest quote, schoolboy athlete of his era, but his name never even appeared in the New York Times until he went to uh, Ohio State University and became an Olympic prospect. So uh, it was in the international arena because they had no res- got no respect at home. They were fighting for legitimacy. Jackie Robinson, Larry Doby, uh, Kenny Washington, Woody Strode, those guys were fighting for access. They had moved to another level. By the late and mid-1960s, when you had Muhammad Ali, when you had uh, Bill Russell, Jim Brown, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, Arthur Ashe, uh, Kurt Flood, those athletes, uh, they were fighting for dignity and respect. Uh, Jim Brown made it very, very clear. I played football because I wanted respect. Uh, Muhammad Ali was about dignity and respect. He was going to, uh, he was a conscientious objector because of his religion. He wanted that respected. He thought that as a citizen of the United States, he should have the dignity to exercise that option. Uh, and, of course, Tommy Smith and John Carlos's demonstration from uh, the podium in Mexico City, which has come to be uh, termed um, the most iconic sports image of the 20th century, um, was about dignity. It was about dignity and respect for African-Americans, both in the arena and beyond. So all of that was in line with what had already evolved, much the same as the athletes today are standing on the shoulders of the athletes of that third wave. This fourth wave of athletes, LeBron James, CP3, Carmelo Anthony, um, D. Wade, uh, Maya Moore, Tina Charles, uh, a young lady, the first athlete to demonstrate about the killings and shootings in the street uh, uh, by white police officers, a young athlete by the name of Ariana Smith from Knox College uh, in Galesburg, Illinois. Uh, They are um, uh, looking at at, uh, power. They're trying to exercise the power of their positions uh, to bring greater illumination to the challenges and issues that we're confronted with. So this fourth wave uh, is built and in continue a continue built upon in a continuation of all that has come before. These are not isolated eras or incidents. What about the response of the public at large, though? Has that been an ebb and flow? Acceptance, resistance, acceptance, resistance. Uh, Again, I I come back to what we're seeing uh, these days and in just the last week, incidents in in Boston, having athletes heckled and using racial terms. 
So maybe it wasn't appropriate to ask whether the movement of minority athletes has been an ebb and flow, but maybe are the rest of society's acceptance of that and respect of that. You know, progress is a concept concept that's a lot like profit. At some point, it comes down to who's keeping the books. And so you have people who have written that because now um, Muhammad Ali, uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, Bill Russell, Jim Brown, Arthur Ashe, the, uh, the Kurt Flood, these are now iconic figures. Even though they were condemned, uh, received death threats and so forth back in the day when they were actively struggling around these issues. As they grew older and time passed and a new generation of young people came to identify with and understand what it was that they were trying to do, uh, they became not just more acceptable, but accepted, embraced in some instances, as in the case of um, Muhammad Ali and John Carlos and Tommy Smith, where they have a 30-foot statue to them down at uh, San Jose State. Um, so so uh, the, the progress is a, is a very curious kind of a, of a concept. The thing that changes uh, are the specific issues that are involved. Uh, the dynamics and the processes of, of, of dealing with those issues uh, remain the same. So uh, we today are struggling using pretty much the same tactics of speaking out, standing up, and so forth, uh, publicizing, uh, protesting these issues as were used uh, in the um, 1960s. Uh, but the issues themselves have evolved and changed uh, with changes in American culture. The social media has had a phenomenal impact in terms of, uh, of this situation. Uh, the situation that occurred in Boston where uh, this Orioles outfield uh, was pelted with peanuts and called all kind of uh, racial slurs. Um, if it's not for the social media and that whole incident going viral, uh, it probably never would have been noticed. I mean, you have a handful of malignant degenerates who somehow managed to get access to a ticket out of some 35,000 people. I mean, how significant is that really? What the social media has done is to magnify even the most isolated uh, and uh, um, aberrational uh, incident to the point that it has to be dealt with. We have not yet figured out this challenge of scale. Well, that was my next question, though. Is, is that good or bad? I mean, to, to call it out at least gives an opportunity publicly to deal with it. And so then the second question is, are we as a society dealing with it properly? You'd think shame alone would keep people from doing this, at least in public, if they want to behave this way or speak this way in the privacy of their own home. Well, Sad, but there you go. But how we how we deal with it? So is social media helping or hurting by focusing? There's no real answer to that. Um, if um, it doesn't go viral, and these people are ignored, uh, how bad is that when you have thirty five thousand other people who are cheering both teams? Um, on the other hand, once it is it does go viral, now everybody is compelled to deal with it. Uh, everybody is compelled to take a stand in terms of it. Where are you on that issue? And then the broader ramifications and implications uh, have to be dealt with. We have not yet come up with a formula 
as to what we should leave alone and just let run uh, because we're dealing with, you know, some uh, gaggle of uh, political mutants uh, as opposed to what it is we should attack now powerfully and and decisively. Uh, In some instances, it depends upon Who's making the statement? Uh, some uh, 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 beard up uh, crowd in a, a, a stadium uh, of 35,000 people, uh, as opposed to an elected official, as opposed to somebody in a position mm-hmm. to really exercise power and act upon that. Um, these are issues that we have not yet worked out. When you say we, do you mean the public at large? Do you mean the uh, the African American athletic movement? Do you mean teams? Who should be thinking about how we deal with this? Or everybody? When I say we, be? I mean the same we that the United States Constitution speaks to. The United States Constitution, the very first sentence is, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union. It doesn't say we the courts or we the president or we the governors or we the Congress or, you know, or, you know, we the owners of Major League Baseball, football or basketball. It says we the people. That's a phenomenal burden that uh, our Constitution puts on us. Uh, this is why social movements are so critically important. Um, the the movement by Samuel Adams and his sons of liberty who threw the 342 cases of tea into the Boston Harbor, uh, that was not a government program. Uh, the same with the abolition movement, the same with the women's suffrage movement, the same with the civil rights movement, the environmental movement, the gay rights movement, uh, the, the anti-war movement. These were all we the people. So when I say we, I'm talking about us because that's who we are. That's what we do. That's what our responsibility is by constitutional design. And so if we determine that we're going to respond to these things, then we have to also have some strategy. And this is where leadership comes in. This is where that ability to project uh, the uh, concerns, the interest, uh, the capabilities of people come in. And this is where sometimes it breaks down. This is what was so great about Kaepernick. What he did was to provoke something that had been called for since the Kerner Commission report in the wake of Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination in 1968, which was an honest, open conversation about race in this country. Here you have a backup quarterback who was injured, a mixed race kid uh, on a professional football team who was able to accomplish something that all of the presidents and governors and civil rights leaders and others going back to 1968 had not been able to achieve. He projected for we the people the, 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 the contours, the context, and the substance of that conversation, and you had everybody talking about it from the president of the United States, from a podium in Beijing, China, to people uh, uh, operating the carousels uh, at the San Francisco airport in shining shoes down in uh, Miami. So th- th- that's where that responsibility falls. This is the greatness of a Colin Kaepernick. If you're just joining us, we are talking with Dr. Harry Edwards on in-depth about the intersection of sports, racism, politics, and social responsibility. I'm Jane McMillan. Let's talk more about Colin Kaepernick, his taking the knee during the national anthem to protest the the killing, bring a, attention to the killing of uh, unarmed African-American men by police across the country, uh, drew some praise, a lot of criticism, but the criticism 
came out in different ways. Some of it was uh, draped in the flag. It's not patriotic because it's the anthem. Some of the criticism was that we hear from other artists and performers. Uh, you shouldn't mix politics with what you do. Play football or just sing your music or just paint your paintings, but don't make it political. Um, what was the what was the uh, attitude of the organization about what Colin Kaepernick did? The San Francisco 49ers ownership, administrative um, officers were adamant about one thing. We must manage those influences, particularly from outside of the institution of professional football, that impact what we do and how we do it and the image of how we do it, we must manage those factors that we can neither eliminate nor avoid. This is one of them. Uh, and so what Jed York, Denise York, John York asked me to do was to manage this situation. How do we manage it in such a way uh, to uh, fulfill a Bill Walsh dictum that uh, we all come out of it better? that we come out of it better for having had the experience. Um, and I think that that is what we, we managed to do to such an extent that other teams, uh, the uh, Lions, Detroit Lions, uh, the Seattle Seahawks, the uh, Miami Dolphins, the Miami Heat, other teams began to call us and say, hey, we have some issues here we need to manage. We need somebody to come back and, 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 and talk, to the, talk to our team, talk to our front office about how we do this. So the 49er organization from the very first day understood that this is something that's not going to go away. In fact, there's a great deal more of it already well this side of the uh, social political horizon. And this was before uh, Trump was elected to the presidency, a man who has yet to have his first Mike Brown moment uh, and have to deal with that. Uh, so they recognize that. And what we've been trying to do is to figure out how do we come out of it better? How does everybody come out of this better? What about Colin Kaepernick now? How did he come out of this better? He's been doing so much charity work, which I think he's been walking the walk. But professionally? You know, uh, the, only, the only worry I have about Colin is that he's going to wind up giving away all of his money because he's, he's giving away millions. Um, and it's not he's giving, writing a check and disappearing. He's out there in front of the New York City parole office uh, providing suits and clothes and, and money for hotel rooms so that people can dress up, get cleaned up, and go and look for jobs uh, while they're on parole. I mean, he's out there literally himself handing out suits. Uh, I'm not worried about Colin Kaepernick. Um, he's very much aware of who he is and what he is and what he needs to be doing. I'm worried about the rest of us. What about, yeah, the NFL, how the NFL has responded to this and other teams being open to bringing him on? Well, I hope that he's on a team when preseason camp opens. I think it'd be in the interest of the NFL. Here's a man who has, one, said, okay, I've sent my message. Now it's time for to move from progress from from protest to progress to move from resistance to resolution which is what he is doing um, and it's not just something he said he's actually following through on it it's in the interest of the league which will be close to 80 percent black by the beginning of uh, this next season uh, not to be sending sending a message that well if you 
make a protest statement and think this is what happens to you. Here's a guy who is only asking for X number of dollars and and can still play, but he's not in the league. And it's because of even allowing that to be a presumption is not an interest of the league, not to speak of the fact that none of this is going to go away. So it's in everybody's interest for uh, Colin to be on a team unless he doesn't want to play anymore, in which case, as I suggested um, in a recent newspaper article, they should make him deputy commissioner and so that uh, uh, Roger uh, Goodell will have his input on these issues going forward. (laughs) What about uh, Major League Sports and the front offices and dollar-driven, certainly, the bravery to deal with some of these issues. And we're still talking about the Redskins name, for crying out loud. Um, what should Major League Baseball suggest or Boston do about fans that we saw? Are you happy with with the structure of Major League Sports and, and its courage to deal with these issues? We're going to have to become a lot smarter. Uh, in terms of how we handle these issues, not just in sports. Sports only recapitulates and reflects society. The management of these problems is going to take our very best minds, and it's going to have to be a diverse uh, input to resolve them. How do we deal with it from the technology point of view? How do we deal with it from a football, a baseball, a basketball point of view? How do we deal with it from a public relations point of view? How do we deal with it from an economic point of view. Uh, All of these things are going to have to be addressed. And at this point, no one has any answers. There are no experts. But these issues are out there and they're going to become more and more prevalent, uh, thanks largely uh, to the regime that we have in uh, Washington, uh, in Washington, D.C., and uh, some of the policy steps and so forth that are evolving. it is going to be very, very difficult for sport to either avoid or to eliminate the impact of these broader societal developments. What Colin was protesting didn't occur in sports. What uh, Muhammad Ali was protesting didn't occur in boxing. What Smith and Carlos were protesting didn't occur in track and field. Uh, That pattern is already set and established. Uh, We need to really face it straight on and to begin to bring people in who not only know how to market a team and to make money, but who know how uh, to better deal with some of these broader issues that impact uh, the marketing and image and so forth of these teams. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. My guest, Dr. Harry Edwards. So we're talking about issues that impact members of the sports community, but also have impacts in the public arena. Before we started rolling on this program, you and I were talking about women athletes and the current political climate around access to women's health and Planned Parenthood. And that was a connection that I had not made. Explain what we were talking about. The assaults on Planned Parenthood and Roe v. Wade are going to have a direct and 
probably immediate impact on women's sports. We talk about Title IX in 1972. Prior to 1972, there were 26 institutions that gave scholarships to women. A disproportionate number of those 26 institutions were black institutions because in uh, historically black institutions, sports has always been related to health as much as to competition. And so women and men uh, participated in numbers. Um, Women and men were on collegiate uh, teams. This is where we got a Wilma Rudolph. This is where these people emerged from these historically black institutions. Uh, After 1972 and Title IX, all of a sudden this thing blows up to now where we have somewhere in the vicinity of 549 institutions that give some type of athletic support to women, including full scholarships. But what people don't realize is that in 1972 you had Title IX, but in 1973 you had Roe v. Wade, which meant that these institutions could move forward with some assurance that if we gave a woman, young lady, a scholarship, in September, she'd be around in March uh, to play in the NC2A uh, volleyball or basketball tournament. She'd be around in May to run in the NC2A track and field championships uh, or play uh, in women's uh, softball uh, championships. Uh, these attacks on Roe v. Wade, on Planned Parenthood, are direct attacks on women's sports. Uh, once you have a situation where women cannot get the kinds of medical services that they need. Uh, I don't care whether it's morning after pills. I don't care whether it's birth control pills. All of the services that are rendered at places like Planned Parenthood and other women's clinics, uh, then uh, women's sports are in deep trouble. And it doesn't make any difference if you're a gay woman in a society as rife with sexual assault as we have in American society. Uh, I know gay women who've had to go to uh, Planned Parenthood and other places to get medical services. And so at the at the end of uh, the day, uh, any assault on Roe v. Wade on women's access to safe, accessible uh, ser- medical services are a direct assault on Women's athletics. We have to begin to seriously battle for women's medical services if we're going to continue to seriously uh, uh, support women's sports from the WNBA right down uh, in point of fact to high school sports for women. Well, and make the connection if you would. Some folks would say, well, getting pregnant is a lot more serious than whether you can play basketball in college. Do we sacrifice what some would see as uh, morality for the ability to continue to play or finish college? Or and but there's a there's a larger social impact. There's a larger social impact. Um, we have to be concerned about uh, equity, about justice for women. If men are not prisoners of their bodies. If we're going to have any significant, intelligent, rational meaning read into Title IX, then there must be adequate medical services for women. Unless we're going to say, you're going to sign a waiver on, uh, of a- abstinence, you're going to be abstinent, And if at any point when you're holding this scholarship, 
you're unable to participate because of pregnancy or whatever along those lines. You owe us every dime back. You have to pay back everything, and that's what's going to keep you in line and keep you. Uh, that that's not that's not a that, that that's not a rational way to approach this. And believe me, I don't know anybody who's saying, "All right, everybody, let's go out and have an abortion." But we have to deal with the realities of the circumstances that we're confronted with. And as soon as Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood is done under attack, finished. We have the kind of situation that we have in Texas where they moved from 44 women's clinics down to 14, with only four of them having hospital admission privileges. Uh, You wind up with the situation that I'm aware of where a young student had to drive 500 miles in order to get the services that she needed. I don't know how many students can get that done and pay for it with cash once they get there. And so these are circumstances, especially under the regime that we have in Washington, D.C. now, that colleges and universities, the WNBA, uh, the United States Olympic Committee should all be dealing with and saying, okay, where are we in terms of this challenge and our women's sports? In America, the, the, these are these are issues that are already in our face. Dr. Harry Edwards, I hate to have to leave it here. There's so much more to talk about, but thank you very much for your insight. Congratulations on the Oscar for O.J. Made in America. Good luck with the Emmy for A Letter to Bill Walsh, and mostly congratulations. Fifty years uh, and a new uh, anniversary edition of the, your book, The Revolt of the Black Athlete. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at kcbs.com. For all news, 740 and FM 106.9, KCBS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.